Hello, good afternoon, everyone. This is Zach Lucas from McCarthy Denny. I'm just going to bring us in early today, some of the housekeeping aspects of this uh, governance and succession family business family office series of webinars. As you'll see for today, we are going to be uh, sort of opening up the whole uh, seminar and the, uh, the webinar series with setting the scene. Tomorrow, uh, on the 27th of August, at the same time, we will also uh, be dealing with solving the problem, which is the issues that we deal with today uh, will come to a finality uh, tomorrow as we, we go through uh, principally how to uh, translate the business into a uh, succession plan, as well as having the governance support that we're going to introduce today. So that will be solving the problem tomorrow. As for the entire program, uh, the following week, uh, next week, Wednesday, we will deal with the first of the regional talks, and that will take in India and Indonesia, and will be uh, sort of kindly joined by MAS again, with Spencer Sue, followed by uh, the following week, uh, Philippines and Japan. Again, senior councils will be uh, discussing the business family environment from each of those jurisdictions, as well as the um, emergence of the family office. Leading on to, uh, I'll take a break for a week and then we lead on to the Malaysia Thailand talk, which is the, the final uh, sort of run of the regional talks. Again, senior councils will be invited to discuss the business family dynamics of their markets and also discuss the needs and the, uh, the sort of emergence of the family office within each of those environments. And then we'll finally sweep up near the end of September with the uh, family office um, uh, that's a webinar on its own, which will bring everything together and as it applies to the single family office in Singapore. So we'll be looking at succession governance and then applying it to the facts of a single family office. For today's purposes, though, getting back to setting the scene, the uh, speakers that will be joining me on panel today, and I'll, I'll run through each and just briefly I'll sort of explain their position, will be Frankie Char. Managing Partner of BDO Singapore, uh, Spencer Su from uh, Deputy Director from the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and of course, uh, Usmi, uh, who's also an Executive Director from BDO Tax Advisory, and each will be contributing in part. The agenda for today will be uh, setting the scene, the opening remarks from Frankie, followed by governance and succession, understanding the challenges, and that's going to be dealt with by me. Professional development, uh, and the IBF and MAS skills map, and Spencer will help uh, to understand, help us understand the developments there. And then finally, in terms of the uh, governance reform getting started, uh, Sumi will then take us through the challenges of getting a governance project going um, uh, with a particular family. For today's purposes, I'll, I'll hand off at this stage. I invite um, Frankie to uh, help us with the opening remarks on solving the problem from a governance and succession standpoint. Thank you, if I can hand off to you. Thank you, Jack. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for taking time from your busy schedules to join this webinar. As Zach mentioned, I'm Frankie Chia, Managing Partner of BDO Singapore. This series of talks deal with important issues. And I'm very pleased that my colleagues, Kali, Sumi, are going to share their knowledge and expertise Business family governance and succession is an area that continues to grow in importance. 
as family seeks guidance to help manage succession to their family business and wealth. Many surveys predict that family businesses in Singapore and the Southeast Asia region will undergo leadership changes over the next three to five years. These surveys also show that families do not feel adequately prepared for the challenges that lay ahead. Effective governance will play a pivotal role in helping to meeting these challenges. Governance involves a set of agreed relationships between the family and the business. It provides a framework to which the family can plan together, provide proper incentives, monitor performance, and hold each other accountable. The presence of effective governance will help to instill confidence in the next generation, not just from the employees in the business, but also wider stakeholders, including customers, suppliers, and others that may have a financial stake in the business. Most importantly, effective governance in family businesses will help families to stay together, manage disagreements, and maintain a coherent family and business unit. Single family offices face the same challenges as more and more business families mature. Their wealth management strategies, creation of single family offices in Singapore will continue to rise, what is now popularly referred to as 13X or 13R. This has been one of the great success stories in Singapore's journey to become a premier international financial center. However, challenges remain. And so the MAS has in collaboration with IDF recently launched their skill map to enhance capabilities of family office advisors. This is a welcome initiative and will help families to sustain their family offices across generations. Moreover, as the COVID-19 crisis has left many business families in a vulnerable position, the need for competent and effective advice is now more urgent, as family businesses form a substantial segment of global economies all over the world. I hope you'll find today's section and the series useful. With that, thank you, and I now pass back to Zach. Thank you very much. In terms of this section dealing with the, uh, the, the challenges um, that the families face, break it into a number of parts for us to understand. The, the first starting point is the founder's vision and, and what's the intention behind succession to and governance of a family business from the founder's perspective. We'll then look at the, the challenges that they encounter in trying to effectively transpose the business across generations. And here we borrow quite heavily on the known areas of difficulties that business families get into in achieving a generational transfer. We then introduce a, uh, a governance framework um, through which professional advisors and, um, um, can, can engage the family to look at the issues that will come up and the particular areas that need to be considered in order to effectively uh, work through a governance plan. 
Then we'll look at how uh, these governance, the governance framework can be applied to companies and trusts. And I'll just caution that today's session is very much, as I said, setting the scene. Uh, the issues that are dealt with are aspirational for the families. Tomorrow's session deals more with the nuts and bolts of how do you effectively operationalize a governance and succession plan when you're dealing with an operating entity like a family company or a family office. So today is really setting out one of the guiding principles that the family should be following in going through the exercise to arrive at the more appropriate platform, whether it's going to be dealt with through a company or dealt through through a complex trust. So without this background, uh, we could you know, sort of fall into the trap of immediately going to a structural solution without actually understanding the problems. So this is why we split the session into what are the challenges, uh, what are the tools that can be used to help to meet these challenges, and then on day two, we'll go through the, the actual structural implementation of some of these um, governance plans, and also crucially discuss some of the limitations that can be inherent in some of these structural solutions. So from the founder's vision's perspective, what's, what's the intention here in a very sort of simplistic way? I use this diagram as a, as a starting position. You'll see, let's say a founder, the shareholder, board of directors, the chair, executive management, and employees. This is a standard company. And what's the intention? The intention is this. The founder will happily run the business, be the sole shareholder typically, especially in startup companies. There'll be no functioning board, the founder will be there. And effectively, the business is run out of the CEO's office of which the founder will occupy. And over time, this will change. And what the intention is, is that as the second generation take over their share ownership, they will likewise begin exactly as the founder did to collectively run the business together and manage it. And that the uh, board of directors will be exclusively family, uh, the executive management will be exec uh, exclusively family, and then we see the third generation making their way through the business in a sort of conveyor belt fashion. And then we go on to the third generation, and as you'll see, the shareholders are now becoming much more numerous. So we've gone from one to three, and now effectively to nine members. Some obviously will be smaller, and some families will be much bigger. And the idea is that the third generation will take over and begin the process of grooming the fourth generation to be involved in the business. And this is a true legacy um, business going forward. At around the end of the third generation's tenure, you'll probably have a business that's almost 100 years old at that point. And this is the vision. And this is the, um, the aim of business family governance and succession planning is to try and find an effective way to introduce uh, uh, different generations to the business over time with the, the business sustaining throughout without any difficulty. And that, that's where most of the families end up in terms of where they, they want to, uh, the business to go eventually. So what are the challenges in, in trying to achieve that? So if we go back, look at the second generation, what are the, the challenges that they may encounter? The principal challenge is this, the second generation will have to figure out how they will get along as their own team going forwards. And this is crucial because uh, there will come a point in time where they're no longer part of, let's say, dad's team, but they're their own team. 
And the difficulties that lie here are that there are myriad different ways in which the second generation may go. Uh, they may not wish to actually be involved in the business at all. And that's a, a, that's a problem that a lot of the business families are encountering, um, particularly in Southeast Asia. Or alternatively, only one member may wish to be involved and the others uh, may wish to uh, pursue professional careers, for instance. So the vision, when it meets reality, can actually um, be quite different in terms of the practical effect of this. If we look at the third generation, how are we going to coordinate the efforts of nine individuals onto the business? And that fourth generation, the presumption is the number will be even bigger. In terms of the directors and the management team, are we going to have nine members there by virtue of effective their family affiliation? Um, how will this work? And I think this is the principal difficulties that the families have is that each successive generation is their own team. And, and they're, they're, the problem that they encounter is the succession doesn't stop with just a transfer of the shares, either by will or through an intestacy or otherwise by way of a gift during lifetime. The transfer of the shares are the beginnings of the, uh, of the difficulties, not the end. So, Having stood back and take a look at what the typical areas of dispute are within family businesses. So typical areas are exclusion from management, failure to provide information, increase of issued share capital, so dilution, alteration of corporate constitutional documents, again, with a view to prejudicing some family members. Diversion of company business, misappropriation of assets. Excessive remuneration, non-payment of dividends. Mismanagement and sharing competence. The problem about these typical areas of dispute is they're rather, it's rather a depressing narrative when it comes to family businesses because uh, the commercial courts, wherever you are, tend to be uh, filled with these types of um, uh, minority oppression or unfair prejudice claims. So these areas of dispute are real and the families encounter them because there's inadequate steps being taken to understand that the successor team really needs to have some more help than the transfer of shares. They need a framework around them and they need to be aware of where they could trip up. And these cases show in stark reality where families just don't get along um, and where you can have um, uh, mismanagement. So what's the consequences for families that go down this route and don't take uh, adequate precautions in preparing the next generation to take over the business? Well, unfortunately, the consequences are all too familiar. It involves court action, publicity and reputational damage to the family, and in many cases, the effective uh, uh, winding up of the company. So a disruption to the business. Now, business families have been analyzed and business family businesses have been analyzed for a long time. Uh, there is a wealth of data on the ability for business families to cross generations effectively and efficiently. This is a, a, a small excerpt from a PwC survey. It could just as well be from any of the surveys that deal with business families. And it shows a, a sort of depressing narrative of the third generation, only around 12% of the businesses taking it through. And by fourth uh, generation, it's about 3%. And many of these surveys 
are conducted on a, a global basis. So this is not geographic um, limited. This is a trend that we've seen around the globe with all of the family businesses. And the, the more time it goes on, the more data we have available that backs this up. So there's obviously a problem with respect to Asia. Uh, Joseph Fan, uh, Professor Joseph Fan in, in Hong Kong, has written extensively on this, and uh, he's a regular speaker, and has effectively uh, written many books on this, including a recent uh, edition. And what he shows from his research with respect to Asia is the 60% uh, plus loss of value in the businesses in the three years in the run-up to succession, and then thereafter. And that's a staggering on a, on a graph this looks like this so this is real so when it comes to us looking at it from the perspective of professional advisors um, these are real situations that affect our clients and in respect to the families involved they are aware that this is a a rather depressing scene that only the exceptional families would appear to be able to get through so Survey after survey shows, particularly when it comes to um, the Asia family business market, that families feel that they need to do more, um, particularly with respect to governance structuring. But year after year, we see surveys that show that they're not doing anything. And this is rather perplexing for uh, professional advisors because we don't know why there is a demand to do something, but then it doesn't translate. So I've, I've tried to isolate, you know, I've been doing this for a while, and I think the, the causes of failure, not the principal causes, but the contributing cause of failure is this. That the family are unaware of best practice governance required by the next generation. So they're not fully cognizant of what the next generation will need in order to make a good go of this. There's a failure to implement any governance reforms prior to succession. So in many cases, businesses are handed off simply on a share transfer basis. So there's no, there's no amendments to the memorandum and articles or the constitutional documents. Uh, there's no attempt to enter into comprehensive shareholder agreements that perhaps suit the succeeding generation more than the prior generation. And there's failure to, to adequately prepare the next generation for the challenges of working together. And I think this is the key one. So, what is best practice governance? Because if this is the problem, that the family are unaware of what they should be doing structurally to prepare the next generation for the hardship of working together and making it work, what is best practice? So sources of best practice, there's a whole array of literature on this, but um, I've isolated a key area that I feel is relevant to the business families. And it's this. There are numerous um, reports and surveys on good corporate governance, and these are primarily aimed at listed companies, although uh, within some jurisdictions they're now point, pointing it to companies that are unlisted. This can all be gone back to uh, sort of Adrian Cadbury's report back in 1992 in the UK, and it sets out what good corporate governance should look like. It, it was the, the, the forerunner of what's called the comply or explain process within corporate governance. But crucially, um, Adrian Cadbury, who himself was um, the, the leader of his own family business, which is the Cadbury um, sort of uh, sweets company, he sets out in detail what he feels from his uh, knowledge, uh, what is the best approach that the family should take in trying to have a sort of sustainable business and having best corporate governance, helping them to achieve that. And this report, although not commissioned for family businesses, is a good idea of how this should translate because 
the OECD, um, the G20, picked up on this and have regularly published their version of good corporate governance. And then latterly, ASEAN has itself um, endorsed this as a good approach for scaled businesses. Now, obviously, in the Asia context, uh, many of the businesses uh, uh, that are listed are, in fact, family businesses. You know, I think in SGX, it's over 60% on some um, sort of definitions. And so within ASEAN, they have a scorecard where they assess each jurisdiction's um, corporate governance rules. And of course, from the MAS SGX standpoint, we also have uh, good uh, best corporate governance within the uh, Singapore market with the Code of Corporate Governance 2018 and then the practice guidance recently this year. So this is a source. It's not the only source, but it's, it's an adequate source for us to begin the process of looking at how the family should approach creating governance frameworks within their own uh, context. So one of the guiding principles that we can actually elicit from these documents, and must remember that most scaled um, uh, stock exchanges around the world now have codes of conduct on this. So it's a, it's a phenomenon that has gained in interest and speed uh, rather than waned. So what are the guiding principles that come from these documents? The first thing is competency. And it may sound obvious, but it means that the family should be assessing the, the, the next leaders uh, and the next generation on the basis of competency. And that within the, the, the governance framework, competency should be a driving force. This means that in choosing, when they're looking at a principled approach to the rules that they'll put in place, they should be looking not at uh, family affinity, but they should be looking at competency as a driving merit. Accountability. This is crucial uh, because most of the family businesses fall out where they have uh, lack of accountability. So uh, effective checks and balances and uh, correct management of conflicts of interest. And this becomes critical uh, going forward because within the family environment, um, obviously it's an extremely emotive environment if uh, we find that members are not acting correctly. Transparency and disclosure. So this is another way in which, from a, a good corporate governance perspective, opening up the transparency of the business, not having opaque decisions, uh, sharing more information with the stakeholders, that guides and keeps a healthy environment as against um, keeping businesses closed and only having limited information sharing. Integrity, and here this is more about the financial reporting and how to manage the checks and balances so that effectively financial reporting is done in a robust way and there is no uh, suggestion of it being in any way conflicted. And this is a critical aspect. And enforceability, and this is really about effective implementation. And this is critical for families that are looking perhaps at doing their governance and succession planning through the corporate shareholder route, using shareholder agreements principally to do this. They have to look at whether or not the supporting law will over time support what they are actually trying to achieve. So these are just guiding principles. This is where most of the corporate governance codes are, are um, sort of fastening on. There's other areas that they look on which are uh, sort of tangential to this. So having more independent directors, diverse boards, looking at more disclosure of payments to uh, uh, directors, a, a greater transparency across the entire um, corporate system. And the, just to remember, the idea behind this is if a company adopts these guiding principles, 
you have a better chance of a more prosperous company and at the same time you will head off the risks that are inherent in a closed system that hasn't had any governance reform at all. Translating into a governance uh, framework, the, the part, this part of the presentation is really about beginning the process of how will you operationalize these discussions with clients? How can they best understand the range of issues that they'll need to go through? Uh, looking at a principled approach for the range of issues that will become relevant as they go through uh, their own uh, governance reform program. So if I take the, the, the company uh, sort of um, icon again, and I look at the principal members, the shareholders and the family members involved, what is the correct framework that we should be adopting in running through the issues with the family? So there's four principal areas that, that will need to be dealt with. Um, no two families are the same, and this is not in any way to suggest that one size fits all. But generally, these four areas will need to be touched on uh, and then uh, sort of calibrated to the family's requirements. The first is obviously control, second participation, benefit and abuse. And I'll go through each of them in turn with some suggestions of what will likely come up in discussion uh, dealing with each of these uh, principal areas when you're looking at the governance reform. From a control standpoint, what will the families be discussing here? So they'll be looking principally at uh, representation on the board. How will control actually be um, uh, represented or how will control be um, uh, uh, hoisted in the future? Uh, branch representation means this. Each family, let's say they have uh, three second, uh, uh, second generation members, each branch is entitled to also uh, have a director appointed to the board independently of their uh, share percentage. So if you have three successors, then in effect, they're all minority shareholders at that rate in any event. So these will be some of the discussion points. Well, should we have branch representation on the board, a fully inclusive system going forward? Or should it be uh, a shareholder appointed directors? Um, and if that's the case, is it going to be at the normal uh, majority rule threshold over 50%. Now, generally, uh, that's where most of the, uh, the, the sort of corporate law will, will arise in it. But should it be even further director appointed? In other words, the shareholders don't have a say in who the directors are from time to time. It's purely the directors that decide this. Very many of the um, uh, memorandum and articles, the default memorandum and articles, will carry the provision that the directors will decide who the other directors are from time to time. Now, when the family is going into looking at the governance framework from a control perspective, they have to ask themselves, looking at the principled approach, whether or not having directors appointing themselves uh, makes them more accountable or less accountable. Because some of the principled approach here is to try and bring functioning boards and functioning management teams to actually have a a proper comprehensive trail of accountability within the company. It's, it's quite, as you get more and more members uh, involved in the company, the accountability has to be calibrated accordingly. So at the founder generation, there's no need for accountability because effectively it's an incorporated one-man band. When you move across to second and third generation, there are much more stakeholders. So these items become critical going forward. 
So if you have and establish a body that appoints itself, it's fairly likely the risk factor of it becoming unaccountable is quite high. And this is the way in which the family has to stand back from the government's framework they have in place or they're intending and then work through the principles and say, well, this, is this correct? Is, is this actually going to be a balanced, a check and balanced approach to um, the, the governance of this um, uh, system going forward? Other items are the functioning chain of accountability and competency, as we mentioned. Things like, should the chairman and the CEO be the same person? Most of the corporate governance code, codes around the world are adamant that they should be separate. And the reason why they say they should be separate is the chairman ought to be effectively supervising the CEO. He shouldn't be the same person because you effectively break down the chain of accountability by doing that. So these are nuances, but it does mean that the family has to transition to actually understand these things from a constitutional balance perspective. Now, looking more at uh, the, the, the functional aspects of the company, business planning, should that involve shareholders or deployment of the, um, the company capital? Should it be sure just only for the directors to look at? And restricted business activities. Uh, many founders will want to put in place safeguards that the business could never get involved in high-risk businesses or businesses that may have a reputational risk. Um, they may wish to encompass those onto the constitutional documents and restrict the objects of the company. So this would be where that sort of discussion would come up. And finally, this is a trend that I'll keep saying in terms of entrenching provisions. And when I say it, what I mean is, is it possible to create provisions that cannot be changed, no matter what the share class in terms of the future? So no matter if unanimous agreement across all the shareholders and directors that there should be a change, can we effectively entrench the provisions? And that's a question of the governing law that's, uh, that's appropriate to that company. And it's important because it means that what's put in place may not last if you have uh, successive generations of shareholders that disagree, okay? So that's where I say entrenchment or not. And it will be an aspect that will be looked at very carefully when forming these governance controls. From a participation perspective, what's meant by participation really is this. It's restrictions on transferring the shares. So this is where most of the families in the region will not enjoy having outsiders becoming shareholders. So it will be only family only. And in many cases, this does not include in-laws. So share transfer restrictions, you would have preemption rights so that if one member wants to sell, it's generally only to another family member. But does this work on a rights issue or transmissions on death? And transmissions on death can cause problems because it may be subject to, uh, let's say, Indonesian uh, civil law, or it may be subject to the uh, Philippines um, Spanish civil law. So you may have a transmission on death that goes completely counter to the actual succession laws that apply. So these are all aspects that need to be gone through when you're looking at uh, whether or not it will be a closed system or an open system in terms of share ownership. What's the risks of an effective share lock-in? And family should confront this because what you're saying is that the capital value of the shares will, could never be realized or practically speaking, not realized. And then more broadly, looking at a family employment policy, how do we introduce family members into the business? Is it competency-led or is it entitlement-led? And this is where the, the corporate governance codes are very clear. It should always be on a merits basis and not just because they're family members. And then again, entrenchment, can we do it? 
And this is something to bear too when we start when we do the assessment of Singapore corporate law and whether or not you can actually entrench provisions under Singapore corporate law. So I'll leave that for tomorrow. Benefits. This is as you would expect. It's just to do with can, how, what can we take from the actual business itself. Uh, the principal methods here are: is there a dividend distribution policy in place? Is there an income retention policy in place? Remember, families fall out very quickly if there is no idea of, a, of an expectation of income, and particularly with members who are not involved in the um, in the day-to-day -day administration and are not taking a salary. So these things become very important and underneath the benefits item of the framework, this is where you would discuss this. Share disposal prohibitions, as we mentioned, so they can't be a sale. Now share buybacks within the family um, uh, business is interesting. Um, it, as long as it's seen as discretionary and the valuations are taken into consideration. And this I think is where the insurance industry has a, a very big part to play going forward because the type of key man insurance that would help to pump prime some of these buybacks would be quite critical. And I think this is a, a key area when the family are assessing the benefits that they want to draw from the business, looking at a share buyback in the event of, let's say, one of the succeeding generation passing away and, and funds flowing into the business would be a good way of effectively cleaning up which members actually want to stay and remain as part of the family business. The succession consequences are obvious for share buyback. That line or that spherical line of the family will no longer be entitled. And I think that has to be taken into consideration. And then use of redeemable shares. Uh, do the family want to be particularly sophisticated about this and issue different classes of shares? redeemable shares, particularly for members that are involved in the business itself, so they can enjoy some of the, um, the benefits of, the, um, of the, the sort of capital growth in the business um, and to help incentivize them. Director remuneration policy, here it's all around um, finding a way in which uh, we can address the issue of the, the natural tension between a director, a family director being paid uh, a high amount of salary and non-executive shareholder family members um, becoming disgruntled about this and finding a way to bridge the gap there and to find a way in which families don't fall out because their act of remuneration causes um, some level of consternation. And again, the entrenchment. And finally, on the abuse side, this is all about the, the game plan here is if you have family members that are habitually abusing the, the, the system by diverting opportunities or uh, borrowing corporate assets or taking funds out of the company as their own. The idea here is you don't, as a first stop, rely on the courts. You try and put in place within the framework dissuasive provisions so that the family members do not go down the route of falling out and then going to court. So if you end up in that scenario as your first go to, then that's not the correct approach. The correct approach is to put in place provisions that will help the family to avoid this in the first place. So when you look at the good corporate governance here, it all talks about opening up the transparency of the business, enhanced financial reporting, shareholder enhanced information rights, independent audits, shareholder audit appointments, so that there's no suggestion that the directors can appoint an auditor that is not, um, uh, that is not independent of their, their remit. Uh, group company information rights. Many times families are held in quite complex structures 
and that all of the, the activities is happening at many, many different layers down. In those instances, the shareholder at the top of those rather complex structures probably gets no information at all. It's completely blind on what's going on. So trying to find a way in which you can have, you can pierce the information right down to the underlying companies and not just the company at which you're, you're a shareholder. Related party transaction approval. This is a big area for corporate governance around the world. And it should be a big area for the family. Um, a lot of the times the families are unaware of terms like fiduciary obligation or conflicts of interest. And these are education standpoints that they need to, to bridge. They can usefully do it around the whole issue of what is a related party transaction and how should they manage that in the future. It's not outlawing it, it's effectively finding a way in which it can be approved without this being something that could later be a source of tension or, um, or disagreement. And then with the more uh, sophisticated families, they may look at enhancing uh, class rights in order to look at enhanced uh, enforcement. So removal of directors where you're a minority because the, the case is made out when you can have sufficient voting shares to do it. This is an extremely sort of sophisticated family that adopts this route, but they can look at class rights amendments in order to uh, effectively deal with abusive behavior before they have to take recourse to the courts. Because the idea is to try and keep the family out of publicity and to try and keep the reputational damage to a minimum if family members have been uh, misappropriating assets or otherwise dealing with a company wrongly. Okay, so that's from a corporate standpoint. Now, from a trust standpoint, um, and we'll go into more of this tomorrow, it gets a little bit more complex, and particularly where we look at private trust company structures, the chain of accountability becomes quite complex. And it's a, it means that the way in which we deal with trusts has to be quite delicate when it's an underlying business that's being dealt with and not a personal investment company with a bank account. So it's a very, it's a changed approach. And certainly from a TCSP standpoint, it requires a reworking in many instances of precedent documents to better accommodate how a family business will fit into a trust environment and how the chain of accountability and all the principles that we mentioned can actually be um, fulfilled. So we apply the same process where the family wish to adopt a trust solution or they already have, and they're reviewing it to see if it matches best um, sort of governance um, rules. From a control standpoint, generally the family will, and in this instance, I've just done a reserve power trust, so the protectors would be the center of gravity of the control mechanism in a, in a trust of this scenario. So the things that will come up is the protector committee powers, director appointment and removal, that should be uh, a minimum in there. Uh, will it be branch representation on the protector committee itself? Many times the protector provisions don't adequately deal with how you will replace a successor protector. Branch succession provisions going forward in terms of how it will be dealt with in terms of the appointment of successor protectors. And then entrenching officer director rules. So what's the quality of the directors of the underlying company that they need to fulfill? So do they have to have certain criteria, certain um, years of experience, et cetera? And how can we put those into the trustee as a criteria that needs to be adhered to um, and facilitated by the trustee? Or is it better for that to be in the M&As? So these are things for tomorrow more, but these are the aspects that will come up, the interrelation between the protector committee and the uh, office of directors. From a participation standpoint, 
uh, entrenched trust provisions, family only, protectors and directors. It's much more straightforward in a trust environment. These provisions can be, can be entrenched. The only thing that you need to worry about is looking at whether or not there's power to bearing within the trust or indeed the variation of trusts act within the, 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 the relevant trust jurisdiction. Uh, in terms of looking at the participation of uh, members, competency criteria would obviously be um, paramount and that would be in keeping with good governance guidelines. And then obviously the, the implementation of a family employment policy would also be um, one of the areas that would be looked at carefully from a participation standpoint and that employment policy would find its way probably as a director's policy or alternatively would be embedded in the trustee itself and be uh, something that the trustee would have to facilitate. Again, for tomorrow, we'll look more carefully at the nuts and bolts of how we can achieve this. But for today's purposes, these are the sort of line items that the families will look at. And finally, from a benefits perspective, it's fairly straightforward from the trust. If it's discretionary, then it will be distribution subject to the election of wish. If they want it to be more fixed, it could be a life tenant income interest. And then if there's a way of you need to translate that into the corporate environment to look at the company distribution policy and how that can support, particularly where you have a life tenant and whether or not that can be entrenched. Generally, where you have a trust holding all the shares of the business, uh, then you can entrench quite a lot because the, the, the trustee will, will permit that. Abuse. Now, the key issue here is who will be the check and balance in a trust scenario? Um, for the present, I would say, look at the beneficiaries to be the check and balance over the protectors. But there's nothing stopping these checks and balances to also apply to the trustees, professional licensed trustees, provided the person that they are not, that they are effectively supervising, doesn't have the power to fire them because then it becomes um, sort of negatory. So for the present purposes, beneficiary information there inclusions, enhanced beneficiary rights to access information. As again, we're introducing more transparency into the trust relationship and that's in keeping with good corporate governance or good governance guidelines and then the appointment of auditors do we have a nominated representative beneficiary that does that or is it the trustees that should do that if we're going to have the professional trustee taking more of a, uh, a sort of checks and balance approach which is totally appropriate then we'll need to also be careful to arrange the trust provisions in a way in which the trustee can actually achieve that so uh, Barclay clauses would need to be excluded from these forms of trusts so that the trustee is without any of the uh, encumbrances that would usually be the case in a trustee discharging its supervisory role. And then entrenchment on a trust uh, subject to the variations, et cetera. So these are some of the items that will be looked at by families, whether they're going through a, some, a, a, a corporate route or they're looking at a trust route. Insofar as looking at a summary, governance framework is necessary for the healthy functioning of succeeding generations. Now, this is, this is quite crucial because what it means is that the uh, previous generation are preparing the succeeding generation for success. And that part of that process is not simply transferring the shares, but also creating a framework which will help them to work better together and manage um, any of their, their uh, their disputes or any of their areas of difficulty. Best practice, corporate governance uh, taken as a principal starting point. So I, you recall I, I looked at some of these listing requirements and listing um, rules and part of them will be the corporate governance code. 
Now, I looked at that because that can be a useful starting position for the family um, going forward. Governance framework is required so that each issue is systematically considered. So control, participation, benefit, abuse. Each of these items should be looked at carefully and then stood back to see whether or not it actually fulfills uh, the, the requirements that the family are trying to uh, meet. And then basically this, education and early action is critical. Okay, so the, what I've been describing to you is very difficult to do once you have a team in place. So if you're a third generation, you've got nine members, it's very difficult for them to agree these things. This is really a, a um, founding members uh, scenario or founding members um, responsibility because if they set the tone, then it will trickle down through all of the generations. But the, the longer it's taking to do this, the worse it gets because the more difference of opinion there will be in a more vested interest. There'll be some members will want to just uh, get out of the business immediately. Others will not be interested as a legacy. And then some, some others will want to just be, uh, this is their whole life. So uh, it is really a, um, a current generation's responsibility to prepare adequately the second generation for their tasks. And it won't be the same as the previous generation. It will be more complex in many cases. So education and early action is critical. Now, from an education standpoint, this is a, a sort of theme that you'll see um, across many of the, the areas on uh, family business and family offices. And uh, it's, it's sort of heartening to see that uh, MAS have also taken the opportunity to look at education as critical for the um, sort of professional services market going forward, particularly to meet the client demands on the um, Singapore single family office. And I think at this point, I would invite uh, Spencer to just share his thoughts with how it's all going uh, with the, uh, the, the new program. What was the, the history and the thinking behind it? And also, what can we expect next on the education front going forward? Because it is so critical across this entire sector. Okay, right. Uh, thanks very much, Zach. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, very well. Very well. Thanks, Spencer. Okay, that's great. Yeah, uh, thanks very much for the very uh, comprehensive run through on what uh, family should be looking out uh, in terms of uh, developing a governance framework to ensure uh, a smooth uh, transitioning from one generation to the next. And uh, like you pointed out, education is a very important uh, aspect of uh, such transition, ensuring that uh, the, the whole family has uh, the right concept of about what kind of a governance framework to put in place. Um, and I think apart from uh, having such frameworks uh, within the corporate structure and within the trust structure, uh, many a times uh, families have also had to consider how they were to look at governance from uh, the perspective of uh, uh, beyond the, the corporate and beyond uh, trust structures itself. And uh, many a times what we see is that uh, they would uh, actually land on the family office uh, as a central uh, unit uh, to put in place uh, this form of governance that is outside of the company and, and trust structures. And I think it's because of this reason that uh, we have also uh, been seeing uh, very strong growth uh, in the family office space in Singapore. Uh, and that is my cue for toggling to my set of uh, presentation uh, that, that I just like to share with um, uh, everyone today. I understand that uh, we have uh, audience coming from uh, uh, not just uh, within Singapore, but also from from the UK and other parts of the world. So uh, this would be a, a useful opportunity for me to share about 
uh, some of the developments on the family office uh, front over here. So like I uh, mentioned earlier, you know, as a result of uh, this, uh, as a result of the need to uh, put in place a good uh, family governance framework, we have seen uh, many uh, family offices being set up. Uh, in fact, uh, in Asia, you know, uh, in Singapore itself, we have been seeing that uh, the number of uh, family offices have grown by five times uh, between 2017 and 2019. Of course, uh, this is with the caveat that, you know, we are starting from a very low phase as compared to uh, regions like the US and, and, and Europe. Um, and I think one of some of the key reasons that uh, we've seen uh, family offices growing at such a rapid pace in Asia is because uh, I think firstly, because of the rising uh, growth of wealth in Asia, uh, the number of billionaires being minted in Asia has exceeded that of you know, the Americas and, uh, and other parts of the world in the past few years. Uh, and I think also uh, more importantly is that many of these uh, uh, families, these billionaires uh, are at a point of a transition whereby they're looking at uh, how to transfer their wealth to the next generation. Uh, at the same time, I think we also see uh, many, uh, many, um, many uh, you know um, family offices from other parts of the world which are interested in exploring uh, investment opportunities in the Asian region and as a result they have set up their uh, family offices uh, in Singapore to access uh, such opportunities. Now uh, going back to the point of um, uh, on education and where this sits in within uh, you know the Singapore government's efforts in uh, promoting education uh, within the whole family office uh, ecosystem. Uh, I think I would have to go back to, you know, our consolidated uh, approach uh, towards enhancing the family office uh, ecosystem uh, as, as part of the whole of government efforts to, uh, to, to grow the family office ecosystem to make it more conducive. Uh, for family offices to establish in Singapore, uh, we have actually established a joint uh, team, a joint uh, strategic task force between ourselves and the Singapore Economic Development Board uh, called the Family Office Development Team to provide a holistic uh, perspective on the various areas within the uh, ecosystem that we need to work on uh, and to enhance. And uh, the work within this, this team is actually uh, divided into three main pillars. The first of which is to uh, enhance uh, the operating environment, uh, which is to ensure that our policies and legislation uh, are in line with uh, what family offices uh, are looking out for. And this would include uh, some of the uh, incentive schemes, uh, be it for the purposes of um, facilitating uh, tax transparency uh, or to uh, facilitate uh, the establishment of uh, residency statuses uh, for families. So I think in, in this regard, uh, some uh, within the audience may be familiar with, uh, with the uh, incentive schemes uh, that we have in place. And Frankie has also uh, made reference to uh, these schemes in his uh, earlier uh, uh, opening address. And uh, these are the 13 X and R schemes, uh, which essentially uh, ensures that, you know, uh, there is uh, tax transparency for investments which are being made by uh, family offices uh, and uh, essentially for uh, family offices which meet the, the application requirements, they would be able to enjoy a tax exemption on qualifying investments. Uh, and this is uh, for the period that 
uh, they have established a fund in Singapore for the period that they are making their investments out of Singapore, uh, there would be the certainty that um, and clarity about the level of taxes uh, that they would be subjected to. Uh, and then uh, on, on the residency front, uh, there are also schemes which uh, facilitate uh, permanent residency, such as the uh, Global Investor Programme, which is being run by our colleagues at the uh, Economic Development Board. Again, uh, for family offices which meet the criteria, they would be able to obtain permanent residency uh, in Singapore once uh, they have satisfied uh, us of uh, their ability to meet the requirements. Uh, on top of that, we're also looking at other, um, other legislation that we look to make enhancements to. For example, uh, the variable capital uh, company uh, legislation, uh, which is uh, a new uh, legal entity uh, for fund vehicles uh, and caters to uh, open as well as uh, close-ended funds which are conducive for uh, traditional as well as uh, alternative uh, investment strategies. Uh, this is a new uh, legal entity vehicle that we have launched uh, at the start of this year. And at this point in time, uh, I think there are at least more than 100 BTCs that have been established. Uh, so we are looking at enhancing uh, legislation with regard to BCCs uh, to ensure, uh, to allow uh, single family offices uh, to also be the managers of BCCs, which can be uh, very useful uh, for succession planning purposes, uh, especially for uh, multi-tier, multi-generation uh, families with more uh, complex uh, family structures. <clears throat> uh, the second aspect of, uh, of the work that we are doing under the FODT is in terms of developing uh, industry capabilities. Uh, and this is where the focus of our educational efforts lie. Uh, and the third part of uh, this strategy that we have put in place is in terms of engagement and community building. So uh, we have been uh, making extensive efforts uh, to be in touch with uh, global family offices to share with them uh, the Singapore's value uh, proposition. And at the same time, uh, we have been working with the family offices in Singapore to bring them together within the community uh, to facilitate uh, experience sharing as well to, as to explore uh, co-investment opportunities. And uh, within such uh, sharing platforms, I think this is also where uh, many of the families uh, will be able to share uh, their approach towards uh, family governance. Uh, and, and this is where they can learn from each other uh, and, and provide support uh, for challenges that uh, individual uh, families face. Now, having talked about the three pillar strategy, I thought I would want to dive uh, specifically into the area of education, uh, which has been highlighted uh, earlier as being critical for families to be able to uh, successfully manage uh, the uh, transition uh, within generations. And uh, I think this is an aspect which is uh, quite new uh, for many of the uh, family office professionals as well as the financial sector uh, professionals uh, in Singapore. Because I think um, over the years, uh, we have uh, built up very strong entities in the uh, private wealth management space who are very uh, cognizant of the types of investments that uh, high net worth individuals are looking at. But uh, in terms of uh, being able to support uh, their clients in their transition uh, between generation for intergenerational wealth transfer, uh, this is an area that we think uh, is uh, uh, our professionals in Singapore may still be uh, somewhat lacking in, 
and, and hence uh, we have gone on this uh, approach to develop a skills map uh, to actually map out the types of skills and competencies that uh, such professionals should possess uh, in order to be able to better advise uh, their clients. And, and the story about how this all came about uh, is uh, at, at the start of the establishment of the family office development team, we actually uh, commissioned uh, two sets of different studies. Uh, one, one study uh, from the perspective of uh, uh, you know, private banking clients uh, who are based uh, in more in the Western, uh, Western uh, part of the world in the US and Europe uh, to, to learn from them, you know, what, which are the areas that they think uh, Singapore should uh, enhance uh, in order to be more attractive to family offices. The other study that uh, we conducted was more, uh, had a, a greater Asian perspective to this, um, you know, working with uh, universities in China to, to better understand uh, what, is the, uh, what is the view that, you know, Chinese uh, high net worth individuals and Chinese families uh, see about Singapore. And uh, it was quite um, coincidental in that, you know, one of the key uh, outcomes from these two studies uh, was that uh, there was a need to beef up the uh, professional capabilities of our um, professionals in Singapore to be able to serve the needs of families. And that's what prompted, um, you know, us to begin with this journey of developing a skills map uh, uh, to to, to, to guide uh, family office professionals. Um, also wanted to add on that uh, further to the studies that were conducted, we actually conducted a number of study trips uh, to, the, to the UK and to Switzerland, uh, thinking that you know, there would be this, um, this uh, particular school or you know, training institution that would uh, just teach uh, family governance uh, and, and we could invite uh, such an institution uh, to set up in Singapore to, to train our professionals. Uh, but um, I think one of the key takeaways from our study trip was that um, I think uh, there isn't such a single uh, institution uh, that has been established and a lot of the expertise uh, that has been uh, developed uh, in these locations were actually developed over the course of many years uh, through you know, hands-on experience in uh, supporting uh, families in terms of their business and wealth uh, transition uh, that these expertise uh, have been developed. Uh, and so I think for us, in order to try and accelerate the process of uh, training and development uh, in Singapore, we decided to come up with this uh, skills map by drawing from you know, the key expertise uh, from these various professionals that we have spoken to and to uh, formalize these skill sets so that it would serve as a very useful tool for professionals uh, to develop uh, skills in relevant areas. And I think in this aspect, there are actually three groups of, uh, three groups of stakeholders that we are targeting uh, with, the skills, with the skills map. Uh, the first group of which is actually uh, the wealth management professionals. Uh, these are the, the, for example, the client relationship managers who are working with, with uh, private banking clients or the family business owners uh, to, to support them in terms of their wealth management needs. So this skills map would actually uh, help these uh, family office professionals identify uh, the key skills that they need to acquire in order to better service uh, their clients. Uh, another uh, key stakeholder in this regard would be the financial institutions uh, as well as the training providers uh, to provide them uh, with a framework uh, for which to design the training program uh, that they would uh, deliver to their own staff 
or to uh, clients who are coming to the training providers to receive the necessary training. And I think the third set of uh, stakeholders uh, could be a bit uh, less uh, expectable in a sense that uh, we are also looking at using the skills map as a means to uh, educate uh, family office uh, principals because uh, this is in recognition that many family offices in Asia are at a very nascent stage in their development and hence uh, they would also benefit significantly from knowing what kinds of skill sets they should be looking out for when they are hiring prof professionals uh, to, to work for them in the family offices and also you know, for their own uh, family members who are working uh, in the family office to pick up in order to be able to carry out their, skill, uh, their jobs uh, effect, uh, effectively. Now, um, just to provide uh, a sense of uh, what this scales map uh, is like and how it sits within the overall uh, framework. Uh, so in, in Singapore, uh, the Institute of Banking and Finance is a training accreditation body for the financial uh, services sector. And in order to guide uh, in order to guide the development of skill sets in different areas of the financial sector, they have developed a skills framework for financial services. So this skills map that we have developed for the family office advisor is actually one of many skills maps which sits uh, within the skills framework. And specifically, this is in the area of uh, sales and uh, relationship management. Uh, I think what I wanted to highlight from this uh, slide is that the role of a family office advisor is similar to that, or uh, is a parallel role to that of a relationship uh, manager within a private bank, and hence uh, holds that a similar level of seniority uh, that we expect of, uh, of a full uh, relationship manager in the bank. And uh, for this skills map, the, the target group would actually be private banking professionals who are, who are advising their private banking clients. Uh, and uh, there is a requirement. Uh, so under the, under the IBF uh, skills framework, there is a provision for such professionals to receive certification. And this certification is a recognition of the specific expertise that they have developed uh, so that you know, they will be able to provide uh, their clients with greater confidence in their ability to meet their needs. And in terms of the, the requirements for certification, uh, we are looking at uh, private banking professionals with uh, more than three years of experience uh, in order for them to be certified as a family office advisor. So I think for a lot of uh, uh, private banking professionals, this would be a certification that uh, they would be uh, interested to uh, achieve uh, as a badge of their ability uh, to, to work with their clients uh, in terms of, in the area of uh, family governance. And in terms of the uh, specific, within the skills map itself, I mentioned earlier that we are looking at the skills and competencies. Uh, and this actually draws from a universe of more than uh, 120 uh, skills and competencies uh, under the skills framework uh, for financial services. Uh, and within this 120 skill sets, we have actually worked with uh, industry professionals, uh, including family offices, uh, uh, law firms, uh, legal advisors, as well as tax advisors, and also the private banks. So essentially, we put together a panel uh, that is representative of the family office uh, ecosystem 
uh, to work with them to identify uh, these uh, key skill sets which uh, family office advisors should possess. And as a result of the, the consultation with this uh, very representative group, we have, uh, high, we have um, identified the various skills and competencies uh, as well as the level of proficiency that we expect uh, of a family office advisor. And if we look at this uh, slide on the screen right now, uh, you would, uh, the numbers on the top right-hand corner of each box uh, actually represents a level of proficiency uh, that is expected of the advisor. And you would see uh, from the skills map over here, uh, top of uh, the list is actually uh, conflict management, uh, which is a level five requirement, and uh, as well as uh, stakeholder uh, and management, which is also a key skill set that we've identified under the skills map. The reason uh, for identifying you know, these uh, specific skill sets as being more important is, is also because um, of the sensitivities in dealing uh, with families, uh, the ability to appreciate uh, the interests of different units of the family and to be able to uh, bring the whole family together uh, to agree on a consolidated plan for managing the family's wealth would take quite a bit of uh, uh, expertise in, in these uh, specific sorry to it would take a lot of uh, you know uh, soft skills in these areas in order to be able to work with families to help them put together an overall plan uh, and you would also uh, notice that some of the other uh, skill sets um, I think uh, another one that I wanted to point out is also um, corporate governance, uh, which uh, I think it, it draws, the way we look at this is that uh, corporate governance uh, principles are very much similar to family governance principles in a sense that there needs to be a formal structure, there needs to be clear roles and responsibilities uh, and, and many of the other uh, areas that you've highlighted earlier as you shared on the key principles for effective uh, corporate governance uh, within uh, the company or within uh, a trust uh, structure. So I think these are some of the uh, important skill set that, that we have identified under the skills map. And we hope that with this uh, skills being identified, it would actually help our uh, financial sector as well as professional services professionals develop the uh, types of skill sets that are necessary for them to work with uh, family offices. And this uh, last slide over here is to essentially to demonstrate that, you know, um, earlier on, I, I mentioned that the family office advisor is uh, uh, similar in terms of seniority to relationship manager uh, in a private bank. But um, what I wanted to highlight from this uh, slide is that there are uh, significantly differentiated skills and competencies that are expected of a family office advisor. And this uh, essentially means that uh, while you may be an accomplished uh, relationship manager within a bank, uh, in order to work with family offices, there are actually additional skill sets that need to be developed in order to uh, better work with the families. And um, like you mentioned earlier, you know, there is a, a long runway for us in terms of developing the skills map. Uh, what we have developed so far is a skills map for advisors uh, working in banks who are advising the families. But uh, there are also, there's also, we also uh, recognize that there is a need 
coming from within the family offices for their employees, either at the uh, working level or at a C-suite level. And uh, these are actually skills maps that we are looking into uh, in, in the later part of the year. Uh, we hope to develop uh, these more advanced uh, skills maps so that it would be also uh, applicable and relevant uh, to uh, employees who are working directly within the family offices. Um, I think with that, it, it brings me to the end of my uh, short sharing over here. Um, I think what I wanted to get from this sharing is also to, to crowdsource uh, for more ideas. And if anyone uh, within the audience you know, has certain views to share uh, with regard to how we should proceed, uh, in the area of education and how we should uh, work on the other advanced uh, skills map, uh, we would be very happy to hear from you and to learn from you to see you know, how, how we can uh, tap your expertise and making uh, the subsequent skills maps even more relevant uh, to family offices. Thank you. Thanks very much, Spencer. Um, just looking at uh, tomorrow, I think what we'll do is defer Sumi into tomorrow for the first part of the session there. But for today's purposes, I wonder, Spencer, if you've had a chance to look at some of the questions and answers, um, well, the questions rather, that have been posted up during the meantime, because they effectively deal with family office queries. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. Okay, um, I'm looking through the questions now. Uh, I think I will try and address. Uh, okay, um, direct questions on the skills maps. Um, okay, I think at this point in time, uh, in terms of the skills map, uh, uh, for the purposes of uh, certification, uh, it is only uh, applicable to uh, private bankers at this point in time. Uh, although the training programs which are developed uh, based on the skills map would be open to all uh, professionals that are working with uh, family offices and also uh, to the family office uh, principals themselves. Right. What about the, there's a query there, um, family office advice, what about qualified trustees um, with a long time experience, would they be accepted? I mean, not so much now, but in the future, is there an idea to open up the categories? Um, I think at this point in time, uh, the, the trustees would actually, um, let me just think. Qualified trustees. I think there's no uh, professional qualification in, in terms of uh, what it takes to be, be a, a family office advisor. And we recognize that a qualified trustee would, uh, would have the relevant skill sets uh, to be able to work with uh, uh, families. It's just that uh, they would not qualify for certification at this point in time. Uh, although when we develop the subsequent uh, skills map, we would uh, uh, expand, we would expand the catchment to a broader group of professionals and would uh, allow uh, trustees uh, as well as uh, legal and uh, tax advisors to obtain a certification with the IBF so that um, uh, the certification process would be more comprehensive. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. And then I think there was a uh, there was a question on what is the criteria to to register a, a family office um, in in Singapore at this point in time uh, for the operation of a single family office uh, there is no specific licensing requirement 
uh, although uh, for the purposes of uh, uh, for the purposes of applying for a, a tax incentive, there is a need to uh, establish that the family office is exempted from licensing, uh, and this can be achieved uh, by demonstrating um, uh, a related corporation uh, structure, whereby it shows that the source of funds uh, for the family office as well as the source of uh, funds for the investments uh, come from the same source and hence um, the family office can obtain a legal opinion uh, to uh, to demonstrate their, the, the, that they would qualify for the license exemption. Uh, either that they, or they could, uh, if their structure is a bit more complicated and it's not able to determine based on the the structural organization of the entities itself, uh, they could still come to uh, MAS for a case-by-case -case, uh, licensing exemption. Right, and for multi-family offices, um, any any need for certification there? Uh, right, so for multi-family offices, uh, because uh, they are actually managing third-party monies, so they fall under the licensable uh, category uh, within Singapore and they would need to apply for a capital market services uh, fund management license uh, with the MAS. Right, right, okay. All right, um, I think... I think that's... That yeah. Have yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty much, pretty much it for today. I think what we'll do is um, uh, sort of wrap up for today and then tomorrow at four o'clock we'll be retuning in. We'll lead off with Simi at that point and then uh, continue on with uh, sort of solving the problem and then end with um, Kylie, Kylie Lou from BDO discussing some of the tax aspects of transferring across businesses uh, within a Singapore context. And thanks for everyone that attended. Um, very grateful and I think we'll call it quits today. Thank you. Thank you.